Hey guys, this is Tho Bishop with Radio Rothbard, and I want to let you guys know about another great Mises event we have coming up on November 4th in Fort Myers, Florida. As you know, everyday Americans feel the political capture of the economy. Inflation, taxes, and regulatory costs hit our paychecks and our savings. The regulatory capture of the medical industries, food and energy production, and the various instruments of big tech empower the regime with new tools to promote their latest ideological cause. The ever-growing burden of government debt has become a crisis without any political will to address it. We're going to be talking about these very issues at this event in Fort Myers. And best of all, we have a discount code for Radio Rothbard listeners. If you use promo code RR2023, RR as in Radio Rothbard, 2023, you'll get $10 off at this event. If you want to learn more, visit Mises.org slash FL2023. FL is in Florida. Look forward to seeing you there. Hello and welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMagan. I'm executive editor with the Mises Institute. And with me, of course, is my co-host, Tho Bishop. And uh, we're going to talk about 9-11. Although not necessarily 9-11 itself, but all of the bad things that happened in the aftermath of 9-11. We're still very much living in the world that 9-11 created, or rather the world that the American regime created after 9-11, using 9-11 as an excuse to greatly empower itself. And it worked beautifully for the regime in terms of getting Americans to embrace the idea that uh, in spite of all the evidence that the U.S. regime somehow keeps it safe, that the U.S. should invade a variety of different countries and be involved everywhere, the continuation of all that nonsense about how we're fighting them over there so that they don't fight us over here, uh, which has now just been transferred to Russia. But it's the same thing. And I think we're just going to look a little bit, uh, though, at how progress was actually being made in the 1990s. Uh, the Cold War had ended. Uh, a lot of conservatives, some of the worst cold warriors of that period, some of the more principled ones actually stuck to their original arguments, which was that, well, we're only going to be despots during the Cold War. And once the Soviet Union's out of the way, then we can go back to being a normal country. And a surprising number of those conservatives, like Russell Kirk among them, actually kind of stuck to that theory. And once the Soviet Union collapsed, they were saying things, all right, time to go back to being a normal country, and uh, we're going we're gonna to bring the troops home, we're going to lessen defense spending, and there's no longer any existential threat to the United States, which has always been true since the collapse of the Soviet Union, assuming the Soviet Union was an existential threat. Uh, which it may or may not have been, but there certainly has been no existential threat to the United States since then. Uh, terrorists have never been an existential threat to the United States. They can commit big murderous crimes, but that's completely different from offering any sort of existential threat, which is what justified the Cold War in the minds of conservatives. That's all over, and so conservatives were finally starting to see, hey, maybe that Bill of Rights thing that we basically trashed uh, during the Cold War. Maybe we should get back, that back. Um, that whole thing about Bill Buckley saying we have to adopt totalitarianism for the duration of the Cold War. Hey, it's over. We don't have to do that anymore. And so progress was being made on that front. Uh, but then 9-11 uh, 
destroyed that movement to the extent that it was happening. And the people who started to sound reasonable by the late 90s had a lot of skepticism in the regime during the Clinton years, completely abandoned that, completely embraced the regime, uh, went completely bonkers in terms of saying you're either with the regime or you're with the terrorists. And it now uh, became no longer acceptable to have any doubts about the U.S. government whatsoever. You had to let it spy on you. You had to let it start whatever wars it said needed to be start, uh, started. And uh, immense amount of, of uh, nascent progress was completely lost and has never been regained. And to this day, all the people who perpetrated that, the, the dismantling of the Bill of Rights after 9-11, have never been punished, never been disgraced. And that's the world we're living in now. And we're only now starting to see maybe a little bit of progress in terms of the populist wing of the Republicans maybe embracing some degree of skepticism about that. But we will see if that all gets short-circuited by anti-China hysteria. Uh, so uh, <laughs> victory on that front is by no means guaranteed, and 9-11 was very successful in uh, assuring that most Americans uh, continue to unquestioningly support U.S. foreign policy as supported by the elites. Uh, but let's start first with your column, though, from earlier this week, which went a little bit into that. Uh, I think it, it looked a little bit about uh, the situation that was evolving in the 90s before it was destroyed by the 9-11 reaction. And well, just tell us a little bit about uh, your ideas there and, and what the takeaway is. You know, people that follow me on Twitter in particular know that I'm very interested in kind of the, the paleo-libertarian project um, that was promoted by Murray Rothbard, Lou Rockwell in the 90s, kind of trying to take advantage of this changing atmosphere with post-Cold War conservatives, you know, the Pat Buchanan crowd, um, you know, recognizing the need for reversing the expansionist foreign policy that the conservatives had advocated for a very long time. And with kind of the history of that literature, the fallout is often blamed on sort of intellectual disputes between certain intellectual figures, um, largely on economic issues. So, you know, you have, you know, Hans Hermann Hoppe, for example, criticizing rightfully uh, the inability for certain paleoconservative figures to get over protectionism and kind of this, this interventionist, what he called... Um, uh, social nationalism as kind of an economic platform, where really if you go back and you read you know, the treasure trove of content from lewrockwell.com, um, which was kind of a continuation of the, the Rothbard-Rockwell reports in the early 90s, you saw that there was a continuing interest in this project in spite of the John Randolph Society kind of splitting ways and things like that. And really the fallout, if you look at Lou's work, the, the pivot away from this outreach to the right came as a result of 9-11. In fact, you had a rather prophetic article from Lou um, on Christmas Eve day of uh, 1999, where he, you know, it's, it's, the title is a memo out to uh, Middle Eastern terrorists or something like that. And he's basically identifying, said, look, the foreign policy dynamic is creating obvious tensions within the Middle East. A lot of the grievances that he outlines are given by you know, various actors, Al-Qaeda and the like, for the reasons why uh, you know, they had motivation for 
Um, but he outlines, like, look, the environment that we have in America right now ha- is changing, that you have skepticism of the regime changing, that you had, you know, the excesses the, the, of the Clinton administration, which, you know, Rothbard in particular has some very, very colorful commentaries about that time. But, you know, they were cracking down on guns. You saw the massive expansion um, into healthcare policy. You saw a lot of kind of proto Obama era style. Um, domestic policies really rive up a right-wing resistance to D.C. in ways that we would all support. And of course, one of my favorite examples right now going through an X-Files binge is that if you want to see this kind of percolating in popular culture, you can look at the extent to which the FBI uh, was being portrayed as basically covering for, you know, shady cabal of political elites, um, you know, trying to manipulate and you know, do, do all sorts of horrific crimes on the American population. And this was a wildly successful show. So like this was baked into the pop culture, the cultural dynamic. This was a mainstream feeling that America had. And then you had 9-11 and everything changed 9-11. So out goes the X-Files, in comes 24. 24 and, you know, the entire sh- uh, system shifts. And I think one of the interesting things is that, you know, the, you know when, when you think about um, the concerns that Washington had you know, again, there was the concerns over right-wing militia groups acting out against um, the more heavy-handed tactics of the of the Clinton years. Um, you know, you had you know, the concern was all oh, these right-wing terrorists, and then 9/11 happens, and the Republicans get right on board, creating the entire artifice of a national security state that we have right now. Which surprise, surprise, in 2023, all these tools are being used against the right. And even interesting still, if we look at even COVID. Um, you know, our recent event in New Hampshire with uh, Peter McCullough and uh, Aaron Cariotti, um, they outlined how specific pieces of legislation that were signed during the Bush years, kind of in this mantle of building up the national security state, things like the PrEP Act. Um, there was legislation about dealing with, you know, bioterrorism and the like. The tools that were created in this post 9-11 fear-driven America end up being the very pieces of legislation that were utilized during COVID. And so, you know, there's a direct connection here. This, this massive pivot comes with 9-11. And that's where, again, the right becomes the, you know, basically the architect of the entire apparatus that is being effectively weaponized against, you know, everything ranging from, you know, Donald Trump, which is, you know, being what it is, to, you know, school board moms, um, you know, going out there complaining about the curriculum in the public schools these days. And, you know, I, th- I think more conservatives are waking up to this, right? You know, the way that 9-11, 9/11 is treated, I think even by, you know, you know boomer cons or, or traditional, you know, more conservative active types, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to get this necessarily on Fox News, but Fox News' importance is on the wane. Um, you know, I think there is a, a growing awareness that you know the, the the people that really paid for 9/11 in the long run from the excesses of the Bush years, you know, continues to be you know, the people that put Bush in power. And so I think that is a moment. You know, we we often focus on on the international blowback, the war on terror, um, you know, trillions lost, you know, millions of lives lost, the continuing damage that it has for you know. American veterans that are still dealing with the consequences of this. And we talk a lot about the Patriot Act, um, but there's all these additional tools that came about here. And really, I think that was the complete undermining of what was a, a golden age of 
American rebellion of the 90s. And you know, I, th I think this is why, if you're reading political commentary from the 90s these days, it has a lot of relevance, you know, a lot of gems of wisdom. Um, can you see in you know, even non-libertarian circles um, interest in people that were associating with Mary Rothbard in the 90s? Um, it's because you know, the, the current environment we have right now with the skepticism of this political class from both sides is exactly kind of where we were back in you know, 94, 95, 96. And I think that is a, at least a positive trend out there. Yeah, I think uh, if you want to get a sense of just how mainstream the paranoia about the U.S. regime was, right? This wasn't paranoia about foreigners like it is now. You're supposed to be paranoid about China. You're supposed to be paranoid about Russia. Paranoia about shadowy forces behind the American regime did go mainstream in the 1990s. And that's noted in the article that you quote by uh, our friend Paul Cantor, the late, great Paul Cantor. And that's a chapter, by the way, from a book called Gilligan Unbound, Pop Culture in the Age of Globalization. He has a chapter on X-Files, which was also that article that you linked to uh, in your article, Mainstreaming Paranoia, the X-Files, and the Delegitimation of the Nation State. Well, boy, you can't ask for more than that, delegitimation of the nation state. And that was all going on. And, and if you want a sense of how that sort of thinking managed to actually get into the mainstream and be featured weekly on a prime time network show, this essay provides, I think, a good uh, sampling of the ideas that were being explored uh, at the time. And far from being necessarily, certainly it wasn't a shortcoming of libertarian thinking at the time, it was certainly a shortcoming of conservatives who still had refused in the 90s to embrace true free trade, true laissez-faire, um, while they, uh, while many were skeptical about the FBI, uh, and notably, for example, called federal agents jackbooted thugs. Uh, I think it was the head of the NRA in the early 90s called, uh, <laughs> called them jackbooted thugs, which George H.W. Bush had to disavow uh, our heroic federal officers. Um, this was at the time of Waco and the time of Ruby Ridge. And so there was skepticism there, but most conservatives in the end, uh, they, <laughs> they, they still couldn't let go of it. They still thought the federal government was great, uh, but maybe was in need of some reform. And especially uh, the mainstream in Washington had never given, gotten rid of that. Though Those people who were truly skeptical were bad-mouthed then as they are now as right-wing extremists and insurrectionists and all that stuff. Back then, the threat was um, these, uh, these militias. Uh, and nowadays, it's, it's people who trespass in the, the capital or they're white supremacists or whatever. Um, so it was a similar dynamic back then. Uh, but it wasn't an ideological problem. It was simply the fact that the regime was more effective at propagandizing uh, the public with lies, lies about how the U.S. government could effectively keep them safe, even though it had not kept them safe on 9-11. And I noted that in detail from an article last year on 9-11 about the CIA and just how the CIA had repeatedly discounted any threats from Al-Qaeda or from Middle Eastern terrorists, was too busy uh, just wasting everyone's time with uh, a bunch of social programs that it was more interested in, uh, was really more interested in, in <laughs> their own careers, 
They they completely missed the boat on 9-11, just as they missed the boat on the 1979 Iranian Revolution, just as they missed the boat on the collapsing Soviet economy and were wrong about the Bay of Pigs. I mean, the, the, the CIA, they never kept you safe. And the FBI was at the core of it, too. The FBI uh, had known about these people, uh, these Islamists taking... Uh, flight school lessons and all that, but they had so many right-wingers, small-time guys who were in militias that they were spending all their time keeping track of. They let terrorists through. That's all assuming, of course, that the uh, that the uh, the mainstream narrative of the whole day is correct, which, fine, let's just go with that. Um, and, and so <laughs> that should have been evidence right there on 9-11, that these people are not keeping you safe and you're spending billions of dollars just to give them fat pensions and huge incomes to do nothing. But after 9-11, what? They just all got raises and their powers were vastly expanded and the FBI was able to spy on you. All of those tools that they use now to uh, censor you, to pressure social media, to uh, program bots, to overwhelm the narrative that might be forming when there's a narrative of dissent on uh, social media somewhere and then the intelligence agencies intervene to make sure you're not seeing the bad stuff, you're seeing what the government wants you to read. Those are all powers that came after 9-11. And because people bought the lie then, they were scared out of their minds, they were told to be scared, and they believed absolute laughable nonsense like, quote unquote, they hate us because we're free. People actually believe that. Of course, if too much freedom is the problem, our, <laughs> we don't have to worry about any more terrorist attacks because our freedoms are mostly gone now. Uh, the Bill of Rights, especially the Fourth Amendment, is a dead letter. And uh, the feds can do essentially whatever they want, thanks to 9-11. And the only thing that holds them back is public interest, public knowledge about these various um, schemes that they have going behind the scenes to spy on you and manipulate you. And when people do expose it, like Snowden or Assange, they're villainized. And most Americans go along with that too. So nothing has been learned since 9-11, except that we can all live with a massively far more empowered federal government and nobody seems to care all that much about it. There's no talk about repealing most of these powers. They'll say, oh, the Patriot Act expired. Yeah, this is because most of those powers are then folded into other pieces of legislation. Uh, so nothing's changed, nothing's been re repealed, and uh, it, it, no lessons have been learned. The people who, who engineered all of that, who told you we needed the Patriot Act, never punished. We still have to listen to videos from Dick Cheney coming on social media telling us what a threat to the republic uh, George D um, Donald Trump is. The only people who have a clue about this are the hard left. I noticed that Jacobin magazine <laughs> ran an article the last time Dick Cheney was going on and on about this stuff saying, hey, Dick Cheney is way more of a threat to the republic than uh, Donald Trump has ever been. Um, and so the left, uh, the hard left, are the only people who are actually coming out and saying that. Of course, if you're your typical center-left Biden lover, uh, you actually believe all that nonsense about how a handful of powerless uh, country boys uh, who love Donald Trump uh, are somehow a real threat to the republic. And, and the, the deep state, they're no threat at all. They're your friends. They only want what's best for you. So that's where we are. That's the ideological state in America right now. And unless the, the, uh, what we're told are the white supremacists um, somehow managed to get some traction again, uh, with the general public, white supremacy has nothing to do with it. It has to do with hating the 
the powers of the central government, um, some, some progress needs to be made there, or we're just still living in the 9-11 world, and they're just taking the same powers, and they're, now everyone's a Putinist, everyone's a stooge for the Russian regime. It's all the same stuff we heard with some of the words changed uh, from 2003, 2004. And that's where we are. And so it's, uh, it's very unfortunate. Um, and there needs to be some change in the ideological atmosphere. But so far, the, uh, the, the post 9 11 uh, despots uh, continue to do all right for themselves. Yeah, some have become less popular. Uh, like, say, you know, Dick Cheney's not exactly a beloved figure, but he does well enough within the mainstream regime. And look at guys like Mike Pence. The fact that Mike Pence and Nikki Haley can even get the time of day from voters illustrates how little progress has actually been made. Well, thankfully, they are, they are very far behind the polls, so they are being projected upon the public through their, their Fox News appearances, not, not really catching on, um, even in South Carolina with Nikki Haley. So there's, there's some hope, perhaps, there. Um, but the, also, I, I think some of the interesting dynamics that happened in the 90s as well that are, are worth reflecting on is that you did have kind of a rise of, of an alternative media then as well. You, know, you had the rise of conservative talk radio, which obviously became captured during the Bush years, but... You know, they. You know, this was when Rush Limbaugh was was really breaking the scene. Alex Jones <laughs> became, you know, a a major figure in his own right. You, ha you, know, you have the early stages of the internet and LeeRockwell.com being a very um, influential uh, thought site um, for libertarians and and those on the right. Even being on Matt Drudge's uh, blog role until again and and War on Terror Fever got got removed from that. Um, and I, I think that's that's really the. You know, I think the lesson that the deep state understood is that in that post-Cold War world, when there was no obvious threat against the American public, it allows for a lot more focus on domestic issues. And so they were able to manufacture this broad war on terror, you know, lumping together. You know, we now have Iraq and Iran, you know, we're, we're working together to, to take down, you know, to, to, to put anthrax in, you know, American schools and the aftermath of 9-11, all that sort of fun stuff. Um, which brings back, again, that Cold War mentality that was lacking. And I think, you know, right now, you do have a very interesting dynamic where, um, you know, they've tried to make Russia out as the new Cold War threat that worked in the early days, right? You saw massive um, public approval for, um, you know, a, an American response to it, not boots on the ground, but, you know, various, you know, seemingly an, an unending, unending uh, line of financial aid, but even that has kind of worn out its welcome on the right. Um, at the very least, the 50-50 issue, I think some of those polls, based off my own, based off anecdotal evidence, um, I'm not seeing, you know, half of the Republicans I deal with, um, particularly gung-ho for another round of uh, foreign aid going to Kiev at the moment. Um, but of course, that's the, the danger right now is that China has been built on those both on the left and the right and really starting politically on the right with the 2016 Trump campaign as this next great, um, you know, American, genuine American foreign threat. And of course, you know, we've talked about China regularly, the show, multiple times on the show, including a couple of weeks ago, the, the weaknesses of their own economy and structure there. But that is the fear is that can China be elevated to a dynamic where all of this focus on the deep state, the regime, 
the weaponization of the government can once again be used as a distraction outwear, uh, out there. Um, I, I do think that the breakdown of communication with voters is a very positive thing. Again, the, the, the irrelevance of Fox News in the modern world, particularly post-Tucker, I think is one of the great um, – one of the most positive developments we have seen in a long period of time because conservatives are not being kind of put in rank and file within that particular propaganda outlet um, being marketed as their allies, but really being the cheerleaders for, you know, ultimately the very system that uh, was used against them. And so, you know, the more that people are turning to um, podcasts and, you know, the, the amount of times I get rumble videos recommended by, you know, people in their 50s and 60s in my local Republican gatherings, I you know, don't always, not always gonna vouch for the, for the quality of the content they're sharing, but the fact that that's where they are getting their content now, I think is a very, very positive thing. And I, I do think that, you know, ultimately, and I, I, you know, in terms of real changes here that can be lasting, um, you know, far too often we get a very reactive dynamic to, um, to these challenges, right? So you have COVID lockdowns and mandates and things like that. And so we get largely state responses to this, stopping it, whatever. Um, that's all, all, all good and dandy. That, that helps deal with that specific crisis. And I will say as a Floridian, I'm glad there's, we, we have explicit rules in the books against mass mandates right now, given some of the headlines out there about a new wave coming in. But I think ultimately the focus needs to be less on reform addressing these issues. And ultimately, you know, we, we really need a mechanism for punishment for those involved. Um, you know, I've, I've been rereading some of uh, Walter Block's works on libertarian punishment theory and the like. And I think this is an area where libertarians have the opportunity to, to start identifying meaningful ways of contributing to this conversation because you know we can talk about reform and you know you can have a rotation of people in the FDI. Fauci is no longer in the position that he had during COVID, but you know he's going to be making you know he's he's now far far richer than he was prior to COVID and is going to be you know continue to be idolized and celebrated um, in all the circles that he runs with. You know there needs to be consequence for this. We need to see um, a political movement. You know, if, if we want to turn this populist energy away from just anger for the sake of anger and getting, you know, impressions on X, whatever, um, it needs to turn into actual punishment on um, the same way that the, the left has been able to create punishment for those who, you know, pose, you know, their crazy cultural agenda, right? We're, you know, standing up to, to um, you know, DEI programs alike can result in hurts punishment to your career, sometimes even jail time. I mean, we just saw someone in the Alex Jones orbit, um, you know, be put in uh, sentenced to jail time for standing outside of the Capitol, telling people not to go in on January 6th, but they're very good at punishing their enemies. And I think here, you know, identifying the specific actors in power um, that are directly responsible for the actions that infringed upon um, that, that, that have allowed this tyranny to continue is something that the right has to do if they're going to get serious about their stated anger over these past injustices. And I think one of the interesting dynamics out there right now is, of course, uh, last week you had the New Mexico governor 
um, you know, make this big sweeping public health declaration uh, suspending essentially the Second Amendment or, or at least the, the, the right to, to carry a gun in the state after some again, tragic shootings. Um, and I, I th it's, it's interesting there, though, because New Mexico is a state that eliminated qualified immunity um, you know, after the 2020 um, chaos. And so, like, you know, here's an opportunity. You know, like, and, and, and even now you have the attorney general, who is a Democrat, saying, I'm not going to enforce this. This is blatantly un unconstitutional. Um, you know, but can people like this, who are very blatantly um, infringing upon, you know, very cut and dry constitutional rights, you know, they've gone through the process, you know, they've got the Supreme Court on their side, yada, yada. Um, can there be accountability, real accountability to these officials that don't simply resolve themselves, you know, in a campaign three and a half years from now, um, where voters are distracted by the next shiny toy, a system that actually punishes those in power that do these things is ultimately, I think, one of the, the few systemic measures um, that can solve this, because we know reforms are constantly undermined by the very people meant to put, in, uh, put them in place, the pull of talent that comes in replacing various heads of these various government programs at you know, both the national and even usually the state level. Um, they all think the same way. You know, they, they come from a similar type of stock. Um, you know, we, we really need teeth to punishing um, those that are responsible for, again, some of the, these horrific incidents um, that Americans have suffered from since 9-11. Well, and that's definitely, uh, obviously that, that has always existed in American history, but it's certainly, I think we can fit that that double standard into the post 9-11 world as well. This idea that uh, Americans are basically the enemy. This is, <laughs> this is the assumption the federal government now functions under, is that everyone's a, essentially a criminal of the state, an enemy of the state, and we just haven't caught them yet, and we just haven't spied on them enough yet, and we just haven't identified their white supremacy yet. And then they'll be arrested. However, if you work for the government, if you're an FBI agent or a policeman who routinely violates people's rights, well, then you have immunity. Um, if you're serving office, well, then maybe we'll throw you out of office um, and maybe we'll give you a slap on the wrist. But, I mean, come on, you're not going to face any sorts of real punishment because that's the way it works in America now. If you can just secure yourself um, some political office, then you have your base of support that keeps you above the law. That's very Latin America, by the way. I mean, this is how it works in, uh, in Peru, for example, where you run for office just to stay out of uh, prison or maybe to get your dad out of prison and those sorts of things. And uh, that's how it is uh, in America now. And certainly now that it's much easier to be declared some sort of political criminal, and I have a recent article on that now, the rise of political crime in America versus real crime, is since any normal person can be declared much more easily a political criminal now, normal people just face imprisonment and horrible punishments from the regime much more easily, whereas those in power, uh, they can do those same things and, and they're fine. Maybe you get a slap on the wrist. And so there is a real growing inequality there uh, and very much the legacy of 9-11 as well, at least in terms of its growth in recent decades. And so, yeah, that's just another one of those developments. Now, going back, I mean, you mentioned a couple of reasons to have uh, good, um, uh, to have some optimism. 
And I think that was driving back in the 90s. What you mentioned was this access to outside information, to non-official narrative info. And in the 90s, we all thought it was going to be wonderful because we could see the Internet coming. We knew we were going to be able to get uh, access to all sorts of information that wasn't coming out of the regime. Uh, this was, In the 90s was the age of zines and like offbeat uh, publications that uh, were not coming out of any of the publishing houses. And you could get all sorts of weird ideas from these things. And then by the late 90s, there were all sorts of standalone websites. Um, and if you could find a good aggregation website like lewrockwell.com or antiwar.com, you could get exposed to a lot of these ideas. And they weren't controlled by any sort of big corporation. Uh, but the problem is, is that a lot of Americans are too lazy to, to do that now, so they just rely on Twitter or Facebook to feed them uh, information that is easily available online, but which these big corporate entities don't allow to be read or seen on their platforms. So people who can't be bothered with uh, broadening their use of the Internet, which is free and easy, and, and we all thought... There was the easiest thing in the world. You could just go to this website. You didn't have to pay anything. You get all this free information. Whereas before that, you had to pay for magazine subscriptions and you had to go buy physical copies and stuff. We thought, hey, this is great. Anybody can get information now. But now most people aren't really interested in that. It's too much trouble just to go to another website. So uh, there, there are good and bad trends there, I think. But yeah, the information is available and for people who are actually curious they can get it. And I think uh, one other reason for uh, hope, and uh, I note this in my article from yesterday, is that uh, the, the military can't get people to sign up for it anymore. <laughs> We're not talking about like mildly missing their recruitment goals. Uh, the, the New York Post was reporting some of these branches, not just the Army. The Army often is the first to have some recruitment problems. Uh, but the Navy, the Air Force, the Coast Guard, the Air Forces, uh, this is the first time they've missed their goal since 99, during that period of skepticism. Uh, the Navy, they're, they're missing tens of thousands of people that they need to meet their recruitment goals. And it's not just because unemployment is low. That's certainly a factor. Uh, but who wants to join just so they can lose another war? Who wants to join so they can be lectured every day about affirming people's uh, pronouns? Uh, it's uh, people are beginning to see that the military is just a, it's a partisan social bureaucracy that's there to forward the careers of politicians that we call generals. Um, and it's there to essentially be the private army of whoever's president at any given time. Now, that was always true to a certain extent. But now uh, the fact that the U.S. hasn't won a major war since 1945 botched the Iraqs. Even the, the, uh, the Gulf War of the early 90s turned out to be a disaster because in the end it just led to another larger war that ended in total disaster, made the Middle, Eastern, uh, the Middle East safe for ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Afghanistan's right back where it was 20 years ago. Okay, if you want to sign up to do that, to be, to be a complete failure, to die in vain and for nothing, I mean, if you had a relative die in Iraq or in Afghanistan, they died for nothing. I mean, let's not Let's not mince words here. They, they died to enrich Dick Cheney and some of his cronies and to increase terrorism in those places. No, one, no American was made safer. They died for nothing. Um, so let's just admit the reality, and that's what you're going to do if you join the military. And I think more people are starting uh, to see that, and that's, that's a good sign for hope 
as well. But boy, do we just have a long way to go. Um, I think ideas are starting to change, but they had almost 20 years in which to really institutionalize their despotism in terms of Patriot Act and, and spying and international meddling that now all that has to be undone as well. There's no time like the president to just keep bad-mouthing it all and to absolutely refuse to take uh, their word for it when they tell us these things are necessary. But <laughs> you you got to stop with uh, buying into the regime's uh, hysteria on China or on Russia, because you can't you can't buy into that and then turn around and claim that uh, oh yeah I'm skeptic I'm skeptical about uh, the Patriot Act and and uh, January six and all that stuff because you're really essentially just doing what the regime wants you to do. They just they're just moving on to a new thing. They got what they wanted with January six. They got what they wanted with the Patriot Act, and now they've got you revved up about Russia and China. Um, or if it's just China, not Russia, trust me, you're still doing what the regime wants and you're just going to make sure that they can keep doing what they want as long as you go along with their narrative on that. So now's the time yeah. to stop. And th thankfully, on, on some of the, the content front, um, you know, it's interesting to see how digital content, kind of the, the waves that you get. Now Substack is kind of one of those platforms out there where you have kind of a, kind of a, a, a revival of that sort of blog style approach to things where you get sort of specific commentators out there. And again, you, you do get a lot more um, alternative voices, which is good. And of course, this, this also plays into um, you know, kind of Elon's changes with, with Twitter um, having some impact there. But Ryan, you mentioned the need for uh, free and quality content. And our listeners have the opportunity to uh, get a free book from the Mises Institute if they are looking for some quality content. Um, if they visit Mises.org slash RothPodFree, that's RothPodFree, um, they can get a free copy of How to Think About the Economy by uh, Dr. Per Byland. It's been flying off the shelves at the Mises bookstore, but we've got that offer for our loyal listeners. And so that is a great, great opportunity to check out to get some quality, free, non-regime friendly content uh, delivered directly to their doorstep there. All right, well, we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode uh, with that for Radio Rothbard. Thank you for listening, and we will be back next week with another episode. So we'll see you next time. <laughs>